0: to St. Martin in the Fields and welcome to Great Sacred Music. Today we're considering the Baptism of Christ, the festival of the church that was celebrated here on Sunday. The Baptism of Jesus at the Jordan by John the Baptist appears in all four Gospels, although we tend to think of it in the way it's presented in Matthew and Luke, where three things happen, the heavens open, the Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice speaks saying, you are my beloved Son, my favour rests on you. One interpreter speaks of the way this, uh, of what this means to those being baptized. First of all, heaven is open to you. Secondly, God's spirit is in you. And thirdly, you mean everything to God. The Jordan is the place where Israel entered the promised land under Joshua, but crossing the water also holds resonances of crossing the Red Sea under Moses forty years before. So there's a sense of freedom from slavery, as well as freedom to dwell. In a land of their own freedom from as well as freedom to. Now it's our tradition always to start Great Sacred Music by us all singing a hymn together. You can find the hymn we're going to sing when Jesus comes to be baptized on the inside of your handout sheets. If you're in the building and you haven't got a handout sheet, there's one at the back of the center aisle just waiting to be picked up by you. Uh, this is a unusual hymn for a couple of reasons. It's unusual because it's written by a community and not by an individual. The nuns of Stanbrook Abbey in North Yorkshire, Yorkshire, a Benedictine community originally founded in France and then coming over here in the 19th century. Uh, It's unusual also because it talks about the hidden years, and you see in the second line, he leaves the hidden years behind. And if you do the maths, you work out that Jesus spent, if you like, uh, a week in Jerusalem working for us, dying for our sins, traditionally expressed, three years in Galilee working with us, building a social movement, healing, teaching, calling disciples, but actually spent 30 years in Nazareth being with us. Uh, And those are the hidden years that are referred to in this hymn, but very few hymns ever talk about those hidden years. So uh, there's a beautiful tune, which you may recognize from its association with another hymn, uh, written down by Vaughan Williams when he compiled the the English hymnal in 1906, but originally a folk tune from Surrey. We're going to remain seated and the voices will stand and lead us as we sing together together when Jesus comes to be baptized. We're going to hear two contrasting pieces now, one from the 16th century, one from the 21st century. The first is by Luca Marenzio, maybe a new name to you. He wrote this in 1585. He has been described as the greatest purely madrigal composer in the whole history of the Italian madrigal and the one in whose hands it reached its culmination as a form with a musical life of its own, not slavishly dependent upon its poetry." So that's Marenzio for you. He worked for Cardinals and Dukes, which is where you got work as a musician in the 16th century in the upper echelons of 16th century Italian society. And this piece, Tribus Miraculis, written in Latin, of course, Describes the three great epiphany miracles, Uh, that of the star hovering over the place where the baby lay, the story of the wise men, uh, the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine, and then thirdly, this one, the baptism of Christ. Then we're going to hear a a very much more contemporary piece by Bob Chilcott uh, based on the account in John's Gospel in John chapter 14. Uh, of the spirit of truth that will be given to those who keep the commandments. Uh, Jesus' baptism is the first place in the Gospels where all three of the Trinity are named and described: the Spirit descending like a dove, the Father speaking from heaven, and Jesus, of course, being baptized. So it's the, our first encounter with the Holy Spirit uh, in the Gospel, and this is a later reference to the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel as described here by Bob Chilcott. We're going to look at two uh, two more contemporary pieces now, both of which consider aspects of baptism. The first is by James Whitbourne, the pure river of the water of life. Here we're in the book of Revelation in the very last chapter. uh, And it's a return to the tree. We get the tree, of course, at the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve eating the fruit that they ought not really technically to have eaten. And it all went wrong from there, as we know. Uh, And at the end, uh, we get the leaves of the tree that are for the healing of the nations, which are referred to in this anthem. There's no night, but this is very much a a return, not just to the tree, but echoing baptism as we're thinking about today. Uh, A new river, you may remember the story in Genesis 2 is about the four rivers, and this is the one river that reappears in Revelation and of course, is prefigured by the Jordan River, which is in Jesus's baptism story. Then, a slightly different uh, angle from James MacMillan, the Scottish composer. Think of how, think of how God loves you. This uh, based on John chapter three, the beginning of uh, the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. If you know your John John's Gospel very well, MacMillan wrote this for his granddaughters baptism service. Here he's engaging with the the common notion in the baptism service, not always practiced with babies, although I did practice it with my own children at their respective baptisms of a change of clothes. We took all their old clothes off, we baptized them naked, and then we clothed them in their baptismal robe. And that's very much the imagery that James Macmillan gives us here in his in his rendering of first john chapter 3 let's enjoy these two modern pieces now Well, we're going to sing uh, ourselves again and join the voices in a moment now. Uh, We're going to sing Songs of Thankfulness and Praise, written by Bishop Christopher Wordsworth, nephew of the more famous William Wordsworth, the poet. Uh, Christopher Wordsworth wrote a lot of uh, hymns. He was the Bishop of Lincoln, among other roles that he held in the church. I think he was quite a serious man. He liked his hymns to teach the congregation uh, what he felt they should know about the Christian faith and particularly about the life of Christ. And in this hymn, uh, accordingly, he talks about the birth of Jesus, he talks about the baptism of Jesus, about the wedding at Cana that we've already mentioned, uh, all of which are showing how, and as it says in the last line of each of the verses, God is Made manifest in a human being, he kind of gives us a bit too much of a good thing, uh, in a sense that I think he uses the word manifest seven or eight times just in four verses. I think you get the message by the time. That's why people get irritated with his hymns because they find them a bit didactic, and you think I can I can probably work that out for myself. Thanks very much. Um, but he uh, he climaxes this hymn with a great picture. Uh, of the the final epiphany, because what all these different things, these episodes in the Bible have in common is they're all moments of revelation. They're all moments, if you like, when the curtain parts and we discover who God really is. And of course, finally, we will do that on the last day, when all is revealed. So it's really a build-up through the life of Christ to an anticipation of the great final revealing. So there's a bit more to it than meets the eye. Anyway, we remain seated and join the voices as we sing together songs of thankfulness and praise. We're coming towards the end of great sacred music for this Thursday. Don't forget that we'll be back next Thursday with the theme of Rejoice in the Lamb, and our sister program, Choral Classics, at 3.15 this Sunday, uh, will be studying Psalm, well, studying or enjoying the music associated with Psalm, uh, Psalm 42 as the deer Pants for the Water. Now, we're going to finish as we began with an African-American spiritual weighed in the water. Why are African-American spirituals continually returning to water and rivers as themes? Well, for two reasons, and they're contrasting reasons. There's a negative sense of water in the Af- African-American spiritual tradition because If you think about it, the founding story of America is that all these persecuted Christians left Europe because they weren't able to express their faith, and then they came to freedom in America, whether they were able to express their faith uh, freely, of course, that usually meant oppressing a different set of people, but we won't go into that. The African-American story, of course, is completely the opposite. It's the journey from freedom Uh, in Africa to slavery and oppression in America. So it contradicts the foundational American story, which is partly why African-American spirituals are so complex in American history uh, and such a sort of protest movement, not just in terms of a protest against slavery, but a protest against the whole American understanding of itself. But of course the other significant element of water Uh, in African-American spirituals is the Ohio River, which had to be crossed if you were going to leave the South to the North, and of course the North didn't have slavery, so if you reached across the Ohio River and managed to cross it, then you were a free person. So the figurative way that that is transposed into mentions of baptism in African-American spirituals is clear that it's, it's a similar journey from slavery to freedom. And then, of course, finally, river is often a metaphor for death by which we escape the, the, the limitations of our human existence and are opened up to the full glory of eternal life. All of that is going on in just a few words here in Wade in the Water, which we're now going to enjoy together. Thanks for joining us.